0: Kids love movies. If you're a young person who can't see or can't see well, Audio Description provides access to the visual images that sighted kids enjoy. The Benefits of Audio Description in Education Beatty Contest, sponsored by ACB's Audio Description Project and the Described and Captioned Media Program, wants those kids to experience Audio Description and then tell us about it. You have a chance to win prizes for yourself and your teacher. Just go to www.dcmp.org learn slash 658 to enter and keep on enjoying audio description.
1: Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
2: Hello, and welcome to Tuesday Topics. It is um, my pleasure tonight to welcome someone who is uh, a former president of ACB, uh, a good friend of mine, and uh, and and a person who I think has uh, an interesting history to share with us for a number of reasons. So it is my great pleasure to welcome Mitch Pomerantz. Hey, Mitch.
3: Hey, good evening. It's great Excellent. to be here.
2: Well, I hope so. Hope you'll say that after <laughs> two hours. <laughs> so I'm sure I will. Did you start? Did you start out in California or elsewhere?
3: I am uh, one of those rare breeds. I was born and raised here. Uh, my parents moved out from New York in the 40s because my father had tuberculosis and needed a place to recover. So, my folks moved out here in, uh, in 44, 45, and uh, been here ever
0: since. And he did recover.
3: Uh, he did, but he did pass away um, in 1961 from emphysema. So, he yeah. never had really great lungs. So, but uh, at least their coming out here got me here.
2: It did. Excellent. Um, and uh, always Southern California.
3: Yes, always Southern California. Uh, grew up in what we call the San Fernando Valley. Uh, lived in the valley and went to a uh, uh, regular high school with a resource program. And uh, have lived. Uh, and then when, when Donna and I got together and got married in uh, 2002, I introduced got introduced to the San Gabriel Valley, which was a couple of a couple of uh, small mountain ranges away from where I grew up.
2: That's excellent. So, in terms of um, in terms of your your school experience, did did, were you mainstreamed all the way through?
3: No, um, K through six was at. Uh, what was uh, up until a few years ago, the last K through six day school for blind children, Francis Blend, I
4: uh-huh.
3: uh, went to uh, uh, junior high uh, and high school. There were with a resource program. Although uh, my last semester of junior high school, uh, they split the, the blind program up. Uh, I used to, uh, (laughs) I knew about busing long before it became a uh, a political (laughs) issue. Uh, I had a very long commute to my junior high school and what would have been my high school, but they split the program up. And the uh, high school I went to was actually just over the line uh, from the school I I should have gone to, but it was uh, where the blind program was. So I was basically uh,
2: in, a, in a neighborhood, high school. And then USC.
3: I went to USC. Uh, I've got a bachelor's and master's in, in political science from, uh, from that institution. I loved it. I lived on campus. Uh, I started mid, uh, mid-year. I started in February of 68. And I got my bachelor's in three and a half years, thanks to some summer school. Uh Um, And then I went on and got my master's. And so I was finished with school uh, in June of 72, but I lived on campus the entire time, except for my last year, my graduate year, and was involved in student government uh, and uh, just had a had a, a very enjoyable time uh, attending uh, Southern California.
2: It's a, it's it's amazing how cool it is if you decide to get involved in things like student government. Um, I did that oddly enough at um, at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica, <laughs> and and it was uh, it was a little unusual because. It was just post-independence, but I was, I was able to win a political office, even though I was sort of the wrong color, um, which was fun.
3: <laughs> well, I, I was vice president of the Men's Halls Association, and I actually got to sit on the Associated Student Council my last year because, unfortunately, our, our president ended up with, uh, with mono— And was out of action for, yeah, he was out of action for a couple of months, and so as the vice president, I got to go go to the uh, to the Associated Student meetings, and uh, you know, uh, (laughs) I found it interesting and learned a lot, and began to, I guess, wet my appetite for uh, for getting involved in in leadership activities of various sorts.
2: Excellent. So. When did you get involved in the blindness movement?
3: Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I had been recruited uh, throughout my college years uh, by the NFBC. But uh, because I was going to school more than full time, uh, I did not participate. Um, when I was in grad school, um, I did a paper, a master's paper, on, en- on uh, entrance policies toward students with disabilities, although in those days we were handicapped students, and, and how law schools de- uh, dealt with students with, with disabilities. I met during my research because I interviewed deans of admissions at I think eight California law schools I met a man who was at that time the dean of admissions at UCLA ironically he also had been the center on UCLA's first national championship basketball team and he was an African-American gentleman and I had an epiphany during that interview and I said to myself you know our situation is as blind and disabled people is similar to what African-Americans went through in a lot of ways. Well, from there, I got involved in uh, the uh, first Los Angeles City um, and called Council for the Handicapped. Uh, I was one of Mayor Tom Bradley's appointees and beginning to get involved in cross-disability issues And so it was a lot easier to recruit me, I guess, to uh, to join NFBC. And my first convention uh, was the fall convention of 1972.
2: Excellent. And were, were you. Did you. I don't know how to ask this question, so I'll just ask it. Did did did. Going into the Federation, did you have any concern at that point over their governance, or, or was it something you ignored, or was it something that was irrelevant?
3: I, I really didn't know much about their governance. And there's our parrot. Sorry, folks. Uh, I really oh, knew it's... very little about them. Uh, they were, you know, they were very active. Uh, they were doing a lot. And so I joined. Now, after my first convention, I had, a, I had a very negative experience actually at that convention with a resolution I drafted that I thought got very short shrift. So a week or so uh-huh. later was the ACB of California's convention. And I went to that and it was much smaller, um, seemingly much less active and even though I met some, uh, some, you know, good people along the way, um, I think the first person that I met was uh, Casey DeLint, and I met uh, I hate- I met uh, Gene Lozano there and some other folks. But ultimately, uh-huh. I went back to the Federation uh,
2: after that experience. Did, um, did CCB pass your resolution? <clears throat>
3: um, ultimately, yes. But I didn't particularly like the way I was treated uh, by uh, a couple of the folks on the resolutions committee. So, but yeah. oh, uh, I get that. You know, things, mm-hmm. things pass.
2: Mm-hmm. So, for the time after you got out of college, what what did you do in terms of employment?
3: Well, that. Was, that was, that was kind of tough because um, I had originally thought I was going to go to law school, but uh, the impetus for that paper I wrote was the uh, fact that I got turned down. So I really didn't do a whole lot for the first uh, year or two, kind of looked around. I thought I was going to get an internship with the uh, Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development Uh, I interviewed, I think that was 72, 73, and they were going to hire me, and I was going to move to San Francisco, and then they ran out of money for the internship. I ultimately, for about two years, believe this or not, I worked for a company that sold speed reading courses, and people would come to the local YMCA, get a presentation, and if they were halfway interested they'd sign up well i was the person who would call to follow up to see if they were interested so i did that for a year and a half i had um i had my uh my wife at the time and another friend of ours took the course and vouched for it so Mm -hmm. you know I, i wasn't i wasn't you know selling something that i didn't know anything about and then um A fellow that I ultimately went to work for years later came to a local NFBC chapter meeting and talked about employment with the city of Los Angeles. And uh, that was pre rehab act. And so I applied to take uh, the exam and the position at the time was called junior administrative assistant. And um, in the interim, I had I did work, uh, again, UCLA does stick its, its nose into my, into my life. I worked actually at UCLA for seven months under the CETA program with yep. a fellow that I knew. Um, but uh, I ended up uh, taking the exam for the city, although it took me a year because at the time, the city required that all candidates for city jobs, any applicant who applied, even if they were gonna take a job, uh, a test for a job that didn't require driving, you had to have a driver's license. Well, I fought that for a year and ultimately they did relent and did test me. And the fellow who proctored my exam worked in the division that uh, oversaw the the city's CETA program, the funding that came from the federal government to the city that was either dispersed through our departments to hire, or uh, onto uh, the not-for-profit agencies that we uh, we uh, connected with. And he said, "You know, uh, if you if you do well in this exam, we have an opening." And I did do well. But what really what really made it possible for me was a gentleman, the man who hired me, and I'm I'll mention his name because. I owe my career to Dave Goronsky. Dave Hmm. fortunately had worked as a volunteer at what was then the foundation for the junior blind. He was not afraid of blind people. He was not afraid of blindness. He knew that blind people could function independently and could work. And Dave hired me and I owe my career to him. And sadly he was killed in a fire, um, Uh, Several years later, but I I really owe my career to Dave because he believed in me, you know, keep in mind 1975 uh, blind people uh, were even less thought positively about than uh, than we are now.
2: Oh, I think that's right. Um, You know, I was. um, I was just finishing. 10 years of teaching a high school in Trinidad, which is even more unlikely. And, 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 essentially the only way I got that job was by, was by in effect working for nothing for a year, convincing myself I could do it <clears throat> and then bludgeoning doors down, um, because I was more qualified than any other applicant they were going to get. Um, and so, uh, but it was fun, but you're absolutely right. And, um, and uh, you know it's it is scary that um, that that there was as much discrimination and as much um, difficulty um, for for blind people as, as late as that, even though we were we were already beginning to talk about um, five oh four. So, how soon did you get involved with the ADA?
3: Well, oh, that was a long time later. Uh, the the fellow that I told you uh, came to uh, make a presentation at our chapter meeting, um, I was working as a recruiter uh, in 1991 huh? when the city decided to hire an ADA compliance officer. And I was working in recruitment and I actually recruited the first person to take that position and then when he left a couple of years later the uh, one of our division heads came to me and she said "Um, would you be interested in becoming uh, our ADA compliance officer and so that I said yeah but that meant I really needed to become knowledgeable about the ADA and so mm-hmm. that's what I proceeded to do. So I became the city's ADA compliance officer in, uh, I think, August of 1994. And so I was there uh, through uh, when I retired at the end of 2008.
2: Excellent. So I actually worked longer than you did. That's scary. Um, well, so I'm 33 years um, and
3: 10 months, Paul.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I had, I had that much in state government in Florida as well. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's amazing. Did you, this is, this is a a kind of an off the wall question, but did you ever regret working in the public sector and not in the private sector?
3: Absolutely. Positively not. Uh, (laughs)
2: you
3: know, I, as a political science major, I, uh, I I think that and government is maligned and, um, you know, (laughs) there's an awful lot of good reason for that. But uh, I, I did not uh, have any, any second thoughts. I enjoyed my time. Um, I got a chance to do a a number of different, uh, different uh, activities in, in government I was I investigated discrimination complaints and argued them before uh, our civil service commission, as well as to our Department of Fair Employment and Housing and EEOC a couple of times. Um, I was a recruiter. Um, I, you know, I I got a chance to do a number of different things, and uh, didn't have any regrets about it. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, or to this day.
2: Yeah, I, I, I happen to be one of those people who is a, a, a big believer in the public sector as well. I think that there, there are a lot of folks who choose not to try to work in the public sector who would be far better served if they did.
3: <clears throat> so well, what, what, what troubles me, Paul, is, is what I've seen over the years at one time uh we had working uh in the city and the reason i i know the number is is one of my responsibilities was to uh oversee the acquisition of of uh of uh reasonable accommodations uh, including Mm -hmm. equipment and at one time there were six or seven of us who were blind or visually impaired working for the city Um, as far as i know most if not all of us have retired and you know, I was involved with ACB government employees for a lot of years, and I kept seeing our numbers dwindle. The numbers of folks working in well, there I don't think there was anybody else working in, in municipal government, but the people working in state or county or even federal government jobs seems to have declined over the years, and that's unfortunate.
2: I think it is too. Um, and and, and I, I don't have I don't have a good answer for why it's happened. Um, I don't think it's any harder to get jobs. In fact, I would suggest it's probably easier to get jobs in the public sector than it than it was, if if you're qualified. Um, and and so I it 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 has it it concerns me and it bothers me because I think that one of the things that we're that we're not doing is is. Is keeping the pressure up on on all elements of government to recognize and accept the fact that there are a lot of disabled people who are pretty capable, and and who can do good jobs, and 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 it concerns me that we're losing ground rather than gaining it. So,
3: one of the things one of the things that I, I do when I have an opportunity to uh, to talk to to folks in college or just out of college. Is is I say, you know, what this does working working in the public sector, it gives you an opportunity to educate. And yeah, you can do that yes. in the private sector, but the, the kinds of jobs I had, and I forgot to mention I did I was 10 years a trainer, you get to be out there among lots and lots of people and showing them that you can do a job, you can stand up in front of a a room full of, of employees and train them, or you can stand up before a, a civil service commission, uh, or go into a uh, into an office and investigate and ask questions and 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 ascertain whether discrimination took place. You know all of those things. I did job fairs uh, for a number of years when I was recruiting, and and all of these give you opportunities to show the world that you're a capable blind person at the you know i'm not special there are lots of capable blind people out there um they just need the opportunity
2: yep yep couldn't agree more all right let's step back um to the mid 80s now and life is going on for an employee of the city of los angeles um And life has gone on for a member of NFBC. But suddenly, um, suddenly life in NFBC um, uh, is not possible anymore. Can you talk a little about that?
3: Well, it it goes back to 70, 77, 78, actually. Okay. When we got sideways with with the... uh, national federation, uh, over a bequest that was rightfully ours, meaning the, uh, the person who passed away wanted it to go to, uh, to NFB of California, very clearly. And the national organization thought that they should get a cut. And one thing led to another. And uh, in, uh, I think it was September of 78, And I was at that meeting, the board of directors of the uh, NFB uh, voted to expel us. And um, about, and there were probably a couple hundred people in that room. Um, Most of us walked out, although a few of us came back in just to see what they were doing. Um, It was heart-wrenching for me. And I've been through a couple of divorces that weren't anywhere near as uh, as as traumatic as this because I I was totally dedicated to the organization. Um, I had one or two run-ins with the leadership on the state level and on the national level, for that matter. But I still absolutely believed in in the federation's message. So it was it was horrible being kicked out. Um, you know we, we fought them in court for close to five years, I think to try and do two things one to keep the California Council of blind name because that was our name before we were even in the Federation, and to keep our treasury, which was pretty substantial at the time. Well, we kept the name, we lost the treasury and we were an independent organization. And and then I, I as I understand it, because I was not directly involved, um, Deward McDaniel came out here, got to talking to our leadership, and actually, uh, I believe we we were accepted in in '84. Although yes, uh, I may be a year off there, but I think it was '84.
2: I think '84 is right.
3: Yeah, but I I did something I did something um, that uh, I'm I'm actually kind of proud of, Paul. Um, we had uh, a local chapter the in CCB, the Greater Los Angeles chapter of which I was president, and a gentleman that some of your listeners may remember named Mac Riley, uh, who has since passed. Mac was the president of the uh, what was called I think the Metropolitan chapter of ACB of California. And one day, Mac, Mac calls me and he said, you know, Mitch, I think at some point, the two, you're, you're going to become a member of, of, of ACB. How about talking about merging our two chapters? And I agreed. And um, we were at least the second, maybe even the first set of chapters from the two organizations in California that that did merge. Uh, Mac and I uh, cobbled together from the two constitutions and bylaws, uh, a new set. And so even before we became a part of ACB, uh, we had a merged chapter. Um, no. I, <laughs> but I think that's pretty cool. It was, yeah, yeah. But it was a tough experience. Um, yeah. You know, my first my first convention was eighty four, but I was there to socialize, yeah, because uh, I had some friends by then in uh, in ACB.
2: It's funny, but my first convention was was also eighty four.
3: Ah, well, it, and it was culture shock, but because yep. I had been to an ACBC convention, and I remember a conversation that I had with with uh, a, a real pillar in California, George Fogarty yep um and george probably told me at that acbc convention that i attended in uh, in uh, 72 he said you know mitch the two organizations aren't that far apart um we get there a little more slowly than you do it takes Mm -hmm. us a little more time and uh, i think that's kind of what i found when i joined acb things were of done at a different pace
2: so were you were you initially disappointed by what you saw in acb
3: i don't know that i had time to be disappointed because and i'm not sure paul if you were chairing the resolutions committee or not i was Um, it, it was i think it was 85 or 86 but it may have been 85 um, I recall I'm, I'm having dinner. I'm planning, I had my evening planned. I was going to do something uh, interesting around the convention. And I think it was Pat Beatty yes. ran into me as I'm leaving. And Pat said, uh, Mitch, uh, you're on the resolutions committee. So and so recommended you to serve and we've got a meeting in 15 or 20 minutes and i said gee that no one told me so <laughs> you know i got <laughs> i got thrown into the fire right away and yes, you did. Uh, i think that helped that helped the transition uh and, from from but, one but organization it, to the next
2: but it ruined it, it probably ruined lots of future conventions for you
3: um <laughs> uh, many absolutely yes. I'm still catching up on my sleep.
2: Yeah, for for those of you who don't know, Mitch eventually became chair of the resolutions committee, and um, for several years, went through the joy of being up on stage and doing resolutions. Um, and he learned In, all of his bad habits from me.
3: Well, Paul, even even the time when my versabrail crashed, and yes. I, I stayed up through the banquet and all night reconstructing resolutions because I had to read them the next day.
2: Yep, it, it was a it's it's a scary time when you're up there with electronics. Yes, sir. So we've we've established that that A C B is a little slower. What about some of the core values of the federation um, that, that ACB didn't accept? How did you deal with those?
3: Um, <laughs> I, I think that it took me several years to really appreciate what the, uh, what, what the American Council of the Blind uh, stands for, um, I think the fact that we do uh, accept people at, at their particular level of, of ability and function, that was something I had a, a little tough, a bit of a tough time, because I, I want to see people do as, as well and be as independent as they possibly can, and sometimes, uh, at least in in my view, um, uh, you need to to kind of get people to to push a little bit to, to get out of their comfort zone. And and I I really had a, a tough time dealing with the fact that ACB was, and I think to to an extent now, still much more tolerant. Of, of people who we know could do more if they kind of <laughs> uh, got the right motivation. Um, but I think I've adjusted. I still, uh, I, I, I think there are people in ACB who still think uh, even today that I, I still carry some, some old NFB notions and perhaps I do. But, but I've also seen ACB evolve, uh, and, and that's a good thing. Um, so I, I, I think I adjusted pretty well. And uh, when I didn't, uh, I think I heard about it. There was the time, Paul, that you will remember, uh, I had a resolution that, uh, that for whatever reason, uh, even knowing full well what our, what our policy was, I, I said, I don't think I ought to bring this to the floor. It's poorly written. It's what it's this, it's that. It'll never pass. Yep. And the woman who wrote it, uh, when I passed the resolution on when I was going on to the next one, she stood up and got the floor and basically ringed me out good and proper.
2: And she was yep. right. Yep. Yep. And and it's it's one of the it's one of the big differences between A C B and NFB that we are so uh anti-central government if you like in in acb that that we give power to individual resolution writers um to 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 be written into our constitution (laughs) it's pretty amazing
3: yes and as and as a public sector person i i'm i'm a little more in favor of 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 central government um i i wouldn't change acb for the world but Uh, There are times that uh, the process is is like watching uh, paint dry. I I don't remember who it was that said democracy is the most inefficient form of government. And, uh, you know, that was the first couple of years uh, sitting and, and listening to the debates during resolutions was enough to drive me nuts. Oh, yeah. Because it just took forever.
2: Well, uh, we've solved that problem by putting resolutions on the last day so nobody dares to debate.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that's a permanent solution.
2: No, I think it's not. <laughs> it may have but, but it gave me a chance to bitch. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so what what impact do you think um, the arrival of Washington and California and some others from the federation had on ACB.
3: Oh, I think I think there was a significant impact. Um, we who had come over were not as comfortable accepting what we perceived as ACB's. Um, too close relationship with agencies and with agency people. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we um, had some (laughs) impact there uh, getting uh, ACB to be a little less agency centric. At least that was our perception at the time. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that I've also seen um, more of a of an effort at uh, looking outside ourselves. I think we're much more involved as the federation has always been on the the national blindness stage and the international blindness stage. Yes, um, the NFB had had that that highway all to itself for a long yes, time and even they though did. yeah and and i think uh, we had uh some some impact there and and there were there were others but and maybe one of the other ones was i think that despite all the debate and the discussion that goes on uh, at conventions i think i think that you know we came saying hey look there's so much to do. Let's move things along a little bit. Democracy doesn't have to be quite as inefficient as, as it appears to be. Um, we, we can, you know, kind of move things along a little bit to get more done.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I think the other thing that you guys did by, by coming in is, is is you made NAC a taboo subject.
3: yeah well i you know i i i to this day and and i think you and i uh, disagree here but i to this day i I still believe that uh it never had enough uh consumer input and um you know uh, rest in peace national accreditation council and yeah you know i i only went on two or three knack tracks in my in my federation days but but i think there needs to be uh there needs to be a certification process and there is one and and i think it's all well and good that things are as they are currently
2: yeah um i i i had i had hoped that when Nat got transferred to AER, that they would have been more sensible about the way that they handled it. Uh, I think they made a lot of mistakes in the beginning um, and, and made it harder for the Federation to start from scratch and, and, and rethink whether, whether they might consider um, becoming a, a, a part of the accreditation process um, be, be, because I continue to believe, and I think you do too, that if, if the system of accreditation that operates is, is good and appropriate, um, there ought to be one. And blindness-specific accreditation is far better than the generic kind of accreditation that people are settling for now.
3: It, it is, but it, it has to be well-rounded. It has to involve consumers and it's not enough to uh, to simply every couple of three years, uh, send someone to an agency, and talk to the staff, and and look at paperwork. You really need to talk to the people who are, hopefully, benefiting yeah. from the services. Exactly, and, and that, you know, that's a big that's a big one.
2: And actually, we agree about that, um, for what yeah. it's worth. Um, yeah. I, I you know I think I think. NAT made loads of mistakes. Um, I continued to support it because I, I absolutely believed that um, blindness-specific accreditation is, is so important. But they, they did an, an awful job of publicizing what they actually did. Um, you know, as, as I think you and I have discussed before, I, I went yep. on accreditation trips. Where, where we flat out refused to, to grant even one minute's accreditation to programs. But nobody ever heard about it. And so nobody knew that we did it. And, and, and of course, nobody knew why. And, and that's a failure on NAC's part in terms, of, in, in terms of public relations, because any good accrediting body has, has, to, has to turn a, a, as many people who deserve to be turned down Uh, get turned out it's it's the way it has to be and and they just didn't publicize it so yeah so let's talk about um let's talk about the ada for a minute and then i want to talk a bit about the world blind union and after we do that i think we're going to open it up for questions and see see who has questions for you on some of the stuff that we've talked about um, okay. you've probably become um, one of the, the acknowledged um, experts on the ADA and I assume you're still doing some consultation. I am. Yep. Um, so would you say that overall um, 30 years on the ADA has lived up to its expectations?
3: Uh, yes and no. Um, it's kind of like the answer when someone asks me an ADA question uh, and, and gives me a, a, a limited set of, of information. My response is it depends. So <laughs> so I'll say it depends with regard to the ADA. Um, I, I think that Initially, um, I don't believe we benefited uh, as much from passage of the ADA as other disability groups. Right. Prior prior to its passage, I was um, I was involved uh, in the uh, the old President's Committee on Employment of Persons with Disabilities, and I right. I had uh, the opportunity one evening. To, uh, to go to a, a small gathering at the then head of the uh, EEOC, a gentleman named Evan Kemp. And Evan uh, had uh, um, muscular dystrophy. And, and we got into a very lively discussion among several of us about the then pending passage of the ADA. I think this was 1989. And Evan said, the problem that I foresee is that if you allow all of these disabling conditions into the ADA, under the ADA umbrella, no one's going to get helped. And I think that there was some truth in that. A lot of us wanted to see it more narrowly defined. Uh, it didn't happen. Had it happened, it would not never have passed. But I think, initially, um, the folks saw this as, as, oh, it's going to put in wheelchair ramps and and do things for people with physical disabilities. I think it's taken blind people a long time and some court cases to get it to where it really does help us. Um, You know, one of the arguments, one of the issues people will come to me they haven't for a while because I think they understand now but people will come to me and say how come there's closed captioning there's been closed captioning forever and and there was not audio description at the same time the closed captioning uh, became part of the ADA and I said because closed captioning was was in its adult stage um, audio description was was kind of in its infancy yep. and because and because we um, had as an opponent the uh, the federation, um, you know, a lot of folks threw up their hands and say and said, uh, "Look, when you when you two different organizations figure things out and come to a consensus, then come talk to us." Yep. So the Deaf community did have a consensus and did get audio description or audio. They did get closed captioning, and we didn't get audio description. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. Go ahead.
2: No, no. You go ahead. Nowadays,
3: well, all I was going to say is nowadays, because of of uh, so many court cases that are, for the most part, deciding that uh, web accessibility is uh, a part of the ADA, I think we're beginning to benefit far more and more um, public. Entities understand that uh, providing us with uh, accessible materials, uh, electronic and/or braille and/or large print, uh, telephone bills or bank statements or whatever, you know, it's the education process is slow, but I I think we're now benefiting uh, as much uh, or close to as much. As, as folks with, uh, with other uh, disabilities.
2: So I don't, I don't know if I've asked you this question before, but if I haven't, it'll be interesting to get your response. Do you think, <laughs> excuse me, do you think that the employment section of the ADA was weakened because of the absence of affirmative action?
3: <laughs> yeah, you will find my answer interesting, Paul. I don't believe in affirmative action. Yep. Uh, because I spent thirty years in in a civil service in a merit based system, and 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 through ACB and through my other involvements, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, persons who are classified uh, under the uh, under the Civil Rights Act as minorities, to me, they're every bit as capable. Uh, And in some cases, more capable than 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 uh, than majorities. So I don't think we would have benefited from affirmative action since I used to teach affirmative action um, when I was a trainer. I also know um, to paraphrase the uh, the Paul Simon song, 50 ways to leave your lover. There are 50 ways to get around affirmative action.
2: Yeah, Uh, I I, I absolutely I absolutely agree, but there there are fifty oh, ways yeah. there are fifty ways of getting out of hiring a disabled person too. Uh,
3: that is that is also true. But I also will tell you, and I think you're aware of this, in Europe, which has had affirmative action slash quotas for for private sector employers for decades. Yes, uh, most most of those companies get around it. And they do it by instead paying a tax, uh, so that they. are, I don't know that there are any more uh, persons with disabilities working in uh, in in either the public or private sector in Europe than they are here.
5: Yeah,
2: um, but but it seems more organized and more together, and 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 there appear to be there there appear to be. Um, there appear to be less conflicts over integrating people with disabilities in into systems there. Or at least that's well, what I it think, looks like from here
3: to me. Paul, but, but the culture is yeah, the culture is different yeah, there.
2: It it is.
3: They're much they're much more socially community oriented than we are in this country. And I think that's a major contributing factor.
2: Yep. I think it is. So one of the things that you got to begin to do when you became president of ACB was to get involved in the World Blind Union. And I think you're, you're currently vice president of the North American and Caribbean region, yes?
3: That is, that is true. Uh, I, should, I shouldn't be, uh, had we had our quadrennial in, in uh, Barcelona, or excuse me, Madrid, Last year, uh, I would be happily retired from, uh, from that position, and uh, with their decision to, uh, to keep us all in our place for another year, uh, I am uh, still vice president of the region. Our president is a wonderful scholar, um, Chinese uh, history scholar, and uh, a three-time published author named Charles Mossop. And Charles and I work together, and and are very involved uh, in in you know promoting the activities of, of WBU uh, here in in this region and then uh, throughout the world when we uh, when we get the opportunity.
2: Yeah, Charles Charles is a, is an amazing guy. Um, I, yes. I didn't know he was he was Chinese though, so it's interesting.
3: He is not. He is not Chinese but in his career he has um become a scholar he has lived in china uh off and on for a number of years um and so um he's really into kind of uh business development organizational development yep, yep. Uh, and he's done a lot of that in china and so as a result uh, he kind of became a, a scholar of uh, chinese history and chinese culture
2: and his b- books are great fun he writes thrillers which are
3: oh absolutely are great fun to read his third one yeah i've got his third one sitting here that i haven't started yet
2: i haven't seen his third one yet so i shall have to go looking for it
3: what a certain a certain person at a certain library on the east coast sent it to me
2: Ah, so talk to me about uh, what the region has done and how the region fits into the world in the World Blind Union.
3: Well, one of the things our region has done and I'm particularly proud of it because it came out of a discussion that I kind of started a few years ago. Up until a couple of years ago, uh, you had really only three uh, geographic entities in the World Blind Union: uh, North America, Caribbean region. You had Canada, you had the United States, and you had the Caribbean Council for the Blind. We had worked with that CCB, but um, there were there were a number of obstacles to to really uh, having the kind of relationship that uh, uh, not just Charles and and I, but but others uh, in the region thought we should have. So we began doing outreach to uh, individual Caribbean nations. And I've I've lost track. Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but over the last two years, I think five or six individual nations uh, have become members of our region and uh, are now part of the World Blind Union. And I'm very proud of that because, um, you know, on the world stage, uh, Europe brings, what, 30 countries, 30 or 40 yes. countries? I don't, uh, we were bringing three for the longest time. And, you know, politics is politics and numbers count. So they do. we're now, yeah. And so we're now uh, we're now seeing uh, other nations uh, within the Caribbean uh, come and, and join with us and, and participate. Um, so, you know, I'm real pleased about that. Um, one of the other things that we've been involved with is Project Aspiro. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> you just had... Have- Karen, Dr. Karen Wolf on a couple of weeks ago, talking about, uh, about that. And uh, that's something that, uh, that we're very proud of and uh, the work Karen's done. And uh, trying to, to promote to blind people and, and other folks worldwide, again, this notion that, hey, we're, we're like you, we wanna work, we can, uh, we can function, we can earn our own living. We don't have to depend on uh, on government assistance, and, and Project Spiro is 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 you know making that uh, philosophy a reality through the videos that uh, that Karen has uh, has uh, you know put put on that uh, on that site.
2: So broader, um, uh, just for a moment. What is the larger World Blind Union accomplishing? Do you think?
3: I I believe that what the the larger WBU is is attempting to do is to make lives better, particularly for blind people in in the developing world. Um, a member of the of our region several years ago, and and someone who is still kind of involved, but but not directly these days, made a comment at, at one of the first meetings I attended. He said, um, "The WBU needs us more than we need them," and and I kind of shook my head. Um, he couldn't see me do that. Uh, I think that so much of what we do now is providing um, expertise in a wide variety of areas in uh, on the African continent, um, uh, Asia, uh, those those places in Asia that uh, that are not as developed as as Japan or or South Korea or, or you know some others. So I think I think that that WBU is is really uh, attempting to uh, to make things better in terms of a basic education, uh, even some basic job skills uh, for the blind and visually impaired people who live there. Years ago, and I don't exactly recall which African nation it was. It may well i won't i won't say cuz i don't want i don't want to be incorrect but it, there was an african nation that had a policy of of killing uh, albinos people with albinism right and of course most of them uh, have have a vision impairment they do well, <laughs> yeah and we were very involved in in pushing the government to uh, rescind that policy and saying that there's nothing wrong with these folks. It's the pigment that, that isn't functioning properly in their eyes. They don't see as well as everybody else, but they're not mental defectives. They're, they're, there's nothing wrong with them. So that's, that's, you know, one of the things that I think we, we do a lot, or we try to do with our limited resources a lot for the third world.
2: I, I think that uh, I, I think that the World Blind Union actually has uh, an amazing record given the size of the organization and the budget that it has to deal with. Um, I'm actually amazed at how much it's managed to accomplish, um, particularly over the last five or ten years, in terms of not only not only putting together programs like Sparrow, but also, um but also um developing papers and 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 policy documents that are out there for for various countries to use should they choose um i, I think it's i i think it's been pretty amazing i'm a huge fan of the world blind union i think it's yeah, a I was, I done was, lot of good
3: i was involved a few years ago i was on the uh, the the then transportation committee and uh, the chair had to step down and I got kind of dropped in my lap uh, uh, one of our initiatives to, to do a paper on, uh, on uh, accessibility, transportation accessibility. Um, and I think at the time we had just come back from, uh, from Madrid, uh, no, it was no. It was another trip we took. We were but we, we were in Toledo where the pedestrians and automobiles share the same space. Oh my. And so I had firsthand experience, and that's very common in Europe. Um, and, and so we had firsthand experience in, in saying, hmm, uh, maybe there need to be some some safeguards uh protecting uh not just blind pedestrians but all pedestrians from uh somebody who who isn't uh, being attentive as a driver so i got a chance to to actively participate in in drafting one of those those papers and and uh, yeah i think we put out documentation that can be used in in other countries uh developing and otherwise uh, to to make uh, their the lives of their blind citizens better
2: one of the things that that fascinates me is i listen to blindness programs that are produced in the uk and in australia and it is amazing just how different um, even even in two countries that you would think are very similar to, to us how different the attitudes and and approaches of, of those countries are. Um, you know, the the, in, the UK program had this big debate last year as to whether or not um, it was okay um, to tell blind people they couldn't go on a cruise.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, Paul, I, I'm reminded of, of two experiences uh, at a WBU quadrennial, actually, that kind of got me to realize that, um, gee, things, things are very different over there. Uh, we were at the uh, meeting in Geneva, uh-huh. and um, one, one morning, um, I needed to use the facilities, and I got mm-hmm. up my seat in the, uh, in the theater or the auditorium and stepped out. And uh, I asked someone, which way is the men's room? And they grabbed my elbow and they said, oh, I'll take you there, I'll take you there. And I said, uh, no, just please point me in the right direction. And they kind of half-heartedly pointed me in the right direction. And then, a, you know, 40, 50 feet later, I thought I was getting close and I asked somebody else that I heard and they did I'll the same thing. Yep. Yeah, and 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 then a few days later, we're on an excursion of an evening and um, we were on a bus and I wanted to sit next to somebody. Donna was in another seat across from me or uh, right close by, but I wanted to sit next to someone to continue a conversation that we were having. And the woman who was leading this tour um, got very belligerent because I found my own seat Uh, Uh, and that when I stepped out of the vehicle, I took three or four steps without a sighted guide. And, and, you know, that's just not what I'm used to here.
2: No. And, and, and it's, um, you're right. It's very, there is an expectation that, that you'll get help. One of the things that, that I noticed in, in the world blind union, probably we're going to, I'm going to get myself in trouble now is, is (laughs) the fact that, um, uh, in virtually every other country, but this one, and that's uh, probably too broad a generalization. Um, the blind people come, but there there are also helpers who come specifically to to, to be yes. with those blind people, and 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 that is the expected way that um, that 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 blind and sighted people are supposed to interact at those conferences. So. It's interesting.
3: Well, uh, it, and and my only my only um, rationale for that, Paul, and I think you know this too, there are an awful lot of countries where it isn't safe to travel by yes. yourself.
2: Yes, um, that's that's correct. Uh, we we have a
3: we have a very dear friend in in South Africa who we went to visit uh, 16, 17 years ago, and. Uh, anybody who is blind who can has an assistant to go out yep and um and at one point uh, in fact we went out for a walk and our our friend's husband uh, was sighted and we went out for a walk on a sunday morning i was trying to we were trying to get over our our jet lag and we're walking on this quiet street and and he turned to the three of us and he said we need, to, uh, we need to go to a more public area we're being followed. Well, we wouldn't have known that had we been traveling on our own. No. And it, there are just lots of places in the world where, where you don't travel independently, and there's a good reason why.
2: Yep. Yep. Mr. Rick, do we have any hands up?
0: We do not yet, Paul. But let me tell everybody what they got to do to raise their hands.
2: What a good plan.
0: If you're on a PC, you can hit (laughs) Alt-Y. If you're on a telephone, it's star six. Uh, On an iPhone app, there is a raise hand button towards the bottom of the screen. So go ahead and hit that. And as soon as we see your hand come up, we'll, uh, we'll call on you. So please join in the conversation.
2: That, um, it,
3: it wouldn't be the first time, Paul, that I've I've uh, I've stopped conversation or discussion.
2: Yeah. Wouldn't be the first time for me either, Mitch. But but it's okay because I've got lots of things that we could talk about. So, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that one of the things that you did. And it, Long before you became president of ACB, as you became president of the California Council, um, and that must have been a little different um, than than being involved with the, the California Federation, because you had a good deal more autonomy than than the federation had. Yeah, no.
3: Um i think by by then um the the folks who had come from the two organizations we we'd kind of merged our our thinking yes and we'd also brought in there were a lot of people who were new uh and and didn't have that history yes so it it really it really wasn't uh a, a real serious issue uh we had uh you know, we had a pretty good board. Um, I was president for two years only, and, and unfortunately there were circumstances beyond my control that I think contributed to, to, to my only serving one term. And uh, my first year as president, we had a very uh, lucrative contract with a thrift, uh, thrift store uh, manager And on Fridays, um, because I worked uh, a 980 work schedule, so I had every other Friday that I'd go to the CCB office, which was located uh, not very far from, uh, from where I lived at the time. And I got a call about 4.30 Friday afternoon from the thrift store manager who says, we're breaching your contract. You don't get any more money from us. Well, we were getting about Three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year from him at the time, and uh, obviously that created a a significant dent in our budget.
6: No and, kidding.
3: Uh, and and it was it was a real scramble for the uh, well. The scramble occurred well beyond my my term as president. I I lost the election in ninety five to to a lady that uh, that is no stranger to regular listeners to Tuesday Topics, uh, the late uh, Kathy Skivers. You know, Kathy did a better job persuading folks that she could lead us out of the uh, out of the fiscal morass. And uh, but it was it was an interesting two years. But I did have a I did have a pretty good board. Uh, We established uh, an investment policy um that the organization never had and which we really didn't need after we lost our treasury or much of it um Chris gray was the chair of that he was my uh, he was my uh first vice president I think at that uh, during that two-year period but uh no I don't I don't think we really had uh any dissension uh, vis-a-vis um, uh, you know how how we governed the organization I think I think by then, Paul, I was pretty well um, uh, ensconced in in ACB philosophy and yeah. and in the, demo- uh, the democracy and in in that. So it it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't a culture shock for me as uh, in the time I was a I was a CCB president.
0: Gentlemen, we have a hand up. Very good, and it is labeled "Call In User 2.
6: it's me bernice candarian hey Hey,
3: bernice hi she's been around longer
6: than
3: i have yeah Yes.
6: i well i i joined the uh the council in january 1973 and um and uh i met you in january of 1975 at a conference in in la i remember that Yep. Yep. yep and uh um uh, you, you know, you mentioned so many people that were major in my life that I did a lot of things with down the pike. Um, um, but what I what I wanted to um, mention about uh, when Kathy Skyvers took over as president January 1 of 1996, she had to borrow $20,000. And I, I can't remember the fellow's name, the big, tall, blind guy from... The, Riverside area somewhere there that uh, he and I thought his wife was fully sighted, but I think she must have been low vision. Uh, they insisted on loaning $20,000 to keep the, the CCB office open. And, um, and uh, she not only was able to repay them that, she also paid them interest. And she did not serve a fourth term. She served uh, three two-year terms, as you know. And yep. it, we used to talk with Kathy of, at least three times a week for all the 34 years we've been living here. And um, she uh, she let us know not too long before she died. She said, "When I left office, the bank account had 1.7 million dollars in it." She knew how to make money. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. She was amazing. We, she, yeah, she got she got lucky with. Uh, uh, car donation became very popular at that time, right. and uh, mm-hmm. it, but it took it took years to to get back on our feet financially, and, and Kathy certainly uh,
6: played. Well, she went role to in a that. lot of uh, when people died, she went to a lot of wills and got money, and uh, but the one yeah. other comment I wanted to make when you were talking about the World Blind Union, I don't know if you guys know. Um, uh, I think he's a Ph.D. His name is Paul Ajuan. He's in Missouri. He's a professor. And um, you know, in the early '70s, um, uh, a couple of uh, uh, Catholic nuns sent people from Nigeria to the United States. That you know, blind guys to the United I States.
2: Ha- I have I have talked to him, Bernice. He's he's an interesting guy.
6: But he
3: go has. ahead. I believe I've had a. Yeah, I believe I've had a conversation with him too. I think he called me. Uh, yeah, uh, well, and we, I think you and Roger uh, sent sent him to me actually.
6: Yes, and to Paul, and, and he calls us every once a week or every two weeks, and we're still in touch. You know, they they went they brought him to the U.S. and they went to Catholic University, and Roger got to know most all of them. Um, uh, uh, um, there's a guy that, try, that he's trying to find that you should know, Mitch, down in, in L.A., um, uh, Joe Foyembo. Yes. him. Yeah. A- anyway, have, uh, what yeah. Uh, what Paul is doing uh, is that he is collecting any kind of technology he can find, new or used, and he's trying to educate people, to educate people in Nigeria, to educate blind people in Nigeria, to to bring them up, you know. And 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 you know that Dr. Martin Jones collects whatever he can get donated to him to send to other parts of, of South Africa so that people have white kings to be able to walk with and things like that. And um, I wish that there was more... Uh, back and forth that we could do to to help them do what they're trying to do in in third world in parts of the third world anyway well, that's my
3: all paul, paul, uh paul you should get in touch mm-hmm. paul, paul might be well served uh by getting in touch with the wbu office in uh in toronto uh and you know perhaps there's a place for him on one of the committees our
5: our mm-hmm, African
3: mm-hmm. Uh, uh, regional organization is is very active, so uh, you might p- might forward him on to uh, to WBU uh, in in Canada.
6: I'll see I'll see if he's connected with them. I did put him in touch with the chair of our uh, international relations committee, and they've been having some good conversations. And I'm hoping that right. ACB will come up with a project that they can work on, you know, with with that entity. Yeah.
2: Bernice, thank you so much for your call.
0: Oh, you're welcome.
2: We appreciate hearing from you. Glad you're listening.
0: Kathy, Kate.
2: Kathy, Casey.
0: No.
7: (laughs) Yes, Mitch, your dance partner. My dance partner. My dance partner. (laughs) Uh, There's a story behind that, obviously. We we won't go into it right now, but... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I would be interested in hearing more about your experiences with the WBU and some of the traditions. You gave a couple of them, which I thought were interesting. Um, and I, I would really like to hear more about that at some point.
2: What, what
7: do you well, mean by tra- uh, traditions?
3: Yeah, boy, traditions.
7: Well, not traditions so much, but, well, I guess they're traditions. So, like you said walking down the street they we had you had to go to somewhere public because someone was following you
5: oh
3: well that that trip was not a wbu trip that was a, that oh, okay. was a trip based on on our our friend uh, in in south africa who uh asked me to come come there and do some training we did uh, disability awareness training windmills training in uh, in uh two major cities of South Africa. That was the reason for that, that trip. I, I would only say, Kathy, and, you know, we've been, we've been to, uh, to Spain a couple of times. Um, aside from being blind in the United States, the other place that I think uh, would be a pretty decent place to be a blind person is in Spain, uh, thanks to uh, ONCE, which is their Spanish national organization. And I think blind people are, are treated well there. Um, uh, most of them, thanks to ONCE, they have, have jobs. And they're not just selling uh, lottery tickets. Uh, they're in a variety of, of jobs there. And ONCE uh, has a, a business side. They own hotels. We stayed in one of the ONCE hotels when we were uh, in Madrid. Um, And that again was on a, on a, uh, on on a trip, on a vacation, but I I just find it fascinating how blind people are treated in other countries. And, uh, since Donna and I love to travel and we're both chomping at the bit, uh, for us to be, be able to do that. Um, it's just very interesting. Uh, Paul, can I, can I tell a non WBU related story?
2: You can, sir. Um,
3: Donna and I um, were on a vacation we'd gone down I believe that was our trip to uh, Puerto Vallarta and we were staying at a uh, at a hotel and the shopping zone was about two blocks from our hotel so Donna and I headed out and for those who don't know Donna's uh, medium partial and uh, so she keeps us from getting into too much trouble and we had crossed the street and stepped up on stepped up on the curb and all of a sudden the squeal of brakes and a car pulls up alongside of us and somebody yells out the window where are your people
7: <laughs> and
3: we said excuse me he said where are your people you you you've got to have people you're not you're just walking around all by yourselves you got to have people we'll take
0: you to your people
3: and and we, you know, we gently explained that no, we don't have any people, and and it probably scared ten years growth out of this, the this these folks because they'd probably never seen blind people walking around without someone helping them.
2: Yep, it's it is, um, and it's amazing how different uh, attitudes are, um, in 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 different countries. I mean. <clears throat> There's a much more helper-oriented culture in Europe as well, even even though they're they're developed countries. Um, in London, there was a, there was a situation last year where an American um, went to the Underground and essentially said, "I I'm perfectly comfortable." finding my way around the underground and it's not an issue. And, um, she got into all kinds of trouble with the authorities because essentially they said, um, you know, we, we have, we have, we have helpers who are designated to get you people where you need to go. Of course, now they're, now they're kind of sideways because in the pandemic, the, um, the helpers no longer wish to help because they have to get too close to blind people, and and even though they designed transparent cellophane sleeves that that blind that the, these guy that these helpers were supposed to wear, that would be the only thing that blind people would touch. Um, they 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 all decided that blind people carried the plague anyway, so it was interesting.
7: Oh boy. Well don't
3: Me. you don't you know blindness is contagious?
2: Uh, yeah. I've known that
7: forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one one thing I, I just want to comment and then I will I will back off here. Um and it, it is a comment that I think Frank my husband was very impressed with that when you were president for ACB that you were prompt and people need to learn from that and he was very adamant that that should be a a trait in people if they're going to do you know such as leadership that type of thing
2: well i resemble that remark Kathy <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Kathy i'm i'm in a lot of ways i'm very old school and i i believe that it is disrespectful to to start late unless there is some really, really valid reason for doing so. And I remember um, my first year as president, when I started meetings on time, people weren't quite used to that um, because that was just not necessarily how things were. Yeah. And, but by yeah. the second year, but by the second year, um, people knew that, that when 8.30
7: rolled around, I was going to gavel the meeting to order. Yep, yep. and that's, that's the way it should be. All right, well, listen, it was good chatting with you. Tell Donna I said hello, and uh, maybe someday we'll get another dance in. Dun, dun,
2: dun, dun. Absolutely,
3: Kathy, and you take Thank
2: care. Thank you, Miss Kathy.
7: You too.
0: Anissio, please.
2: <throat> Mr. Correa.
4: Hello and Mitch, nice to hear your voice. Um, I just thank
0: you. Oops, sorry. There, there you go. Sorry, Inicio.
4: Rick, Rick is trying to get rid of me. I I hit the uh, wrong button. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I remember when you were president, uh, Mitch. You were. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a, a task force. Um, Around Medicare paying for for devices, which um, obviously it didn't, it wasn't successful. But I'm glad to hear that six years or seven years later, we're still going at it. So what ACB is, so that that's a good thing. I wanted to. I cannot leave this comment uh, stay like this from, about Europe, since I grew up in uh, grew up in Europe in Uh-oh. in Port, in Portugal. <laughs> no, I don't disagree totally with. With what you said, I think what is happening though is so. I, I grew up in Portugal. Uh, I went to, Lis- to to college in Lisbon and and was totally independent there in terms of t- taking the subway and going to school back and forth, etc., living on my own. Um, and then I moved to this country. And I I think what I'm trying to get at is that as as services uh, this. So I went to college in Lisbon in the early 70s where when there was absolutely no services at all in Portugal, way before the European Union, etc. Now um, that services are a lot more services are available, uh, I think just like here, I think blind people tend to adopt a more a lazier attitude. So I don't know that necessarily it all comes from society. Some of it comes from a certain dependence that is fostered by services. And believe me, I'm not against services whatsoever. So what you see now, for example, in Europe, I'll give you an example. I just recently applied for, reapplied for my passport, Portuguese passport, since I have dual citizenship. And when I applied that to Portuguese consulate here in, in Florida, one of the questions they asked, which totally surprised, shocked me, was would you like correspondence in Braille? I said, yeah, of course. And sure enough, since then, every correspondence I get from the Portuguese government out of uh, from Lisbon and the Portuguese embassy in, in Washington is in Braille. So in some ways, they are more advanced because we sort of don't get that here. You know, we, we fight social security to even get, you know, that stuff in accessible format. On the other hand, I think sometimes services go um, I don't know if it's too far, or you know, the the to the point where people become blind people. I mean, become a little bit more lazy and uh, and less self self driven. Um, and I I was saddened to hear your experience about you know the fact that less and less people have taken advantage of. Uh, city government or, or county government or local government. Um, and, and again, I, I wonder if all these all this kind of these kinds of attitudes are linked. And that's all. That's, that's, that's my only well, my own controversy yeah first, of all, yeah.
3: first of all, Onicio, I, I suspect that Portugal being a neighbor of Spain, that maybe a little bit of once uh, kind of worked its way into Portuguese thinking.
4: Yeah, not not no, the I don't income know that of for
3: sure. That. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not the income, but perhaps yes. some of the attitudinal uh, right. things right. Uh, kind of kind of got got over there. We have friends who who were in uh, Portugal a couple of years ago, and I, I didn't have a haven't had a chance to ask them whether they observed any of of that. But
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, look, I. I am old school. I I believe in 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 some of the old fashioned values, and I think in some ways, um, things are a little too easy for blind people these days. I agree. I agree. And and you know I remember when I went to USC uh, in my in 1968, um, I had to arrange for my own readers. I had to lobby my profs for test taking accommodations and there were no computers in those days um i had to to do all of those things myself and and i i think it's made me a better person i think it's it's made me more resourceful and you know for all of the the under 40s that might be listening uh i'd i'd love to hear uh you tell me otherwise but i i just don't I just think that some of the adversity that, that, you know, Paul and I are approximately the same age that we had to deal with uh, in college and in, and in finding a job, um, I found my own job. Uh, no one would rehab yep. paid for some, some of my books, but, but uh, I found my own job. And, and Me too. I,
4: I, I Me that's too. a bad thing. Then the same here i mean obviously you know growing up in portugal too but i mean i had to write my own books you know transcribe my own books in high school you know on a face and So you know, i feel like i'm saying you know i walked to school with barefoot and all that but <laughs> i'm wondering though, Mitch, uphill both ways i know really i re- i wonder though is because uh, obviously you know it, uh, services and specialist ed- services and all that you know are critical and and you know, who am I to be against them since I worked in, in this field for all my adulthood year in this country. But I'm wondering, what is that middle point or the middle, you know, uh, that 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 forces people, quote-unquote, to, to be independent, not to always take the easy right. way? You know, I mean, I, I remember, you know, when I moved to um, Atlanta to work in Atlanta, and I... <clears throat> i i was taking obviously modern the, the subway there and most blind people i knew would not step on 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 the on the train you know right. that was always taking <laughs> paratransit back and forth even though it was and then they would complain because it was late you know i said well goodbye i'm leaving but you know i'm wondering what is that you know how how do we how do we create that middle uh somewhere yeah. in the middle yeah, yeah.
3: anicio two comments one we have a real problem generally in this country finding a middle ground we we seem to go from one extreme to another and i think that that's probably the case uh with with us and with Mm -hmm. provision of services and and just as as a as a fun anecdote i didn't use paratransit except through donna until about five years ago donna basically you know beat me about the head and shoulders uh, to get me to finally apply for and get paratransit in all the years that I worked um, I I either took a bus or when our our light rail um, and actually our underground uh, into LA I was living in LA at the time uh, I took I took either the subway or light rail to work uh, I never used paratransit for uh for, uh getting to work and and nowadays um, we we use paratransit very very sparingly
2: mm-hmm. right
4: oh, and that is a place for it obviously but maybe this is but, a, yeah. a, a topic for another program Paul
2: well um, yeah I mean it, it, it perhaps it is but I, I you know I'm pathetic with what you're talking about in I you know I remember when I came to this country from the Caribbean, I, I got really angry uh, over over the number of blind people who were essentially sitting on their hands and who were perfectly content to sit on their hands
4: mm-hmm.
2: and 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 just just didn't take the idea that they ought to go to work or that they ought to um, that they ought to try to become all they could be um, seriously and and, and I, I mean I, I was really angry um, and and it took me, kind of three or four years to, to, to calm down from that, because, you know, here in, in Jamaica and Trinidad, you have, you have blind people who have essentially no services who are, who are teaching themselves orientation and mobility, who are, um, who are, who are actively looking for ways of making money and, 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 and folks who have the opportunity to be, to be whatever they want to be in this country mm-hmm. essentially say it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so, those, so I hear you. Yeah.
4: Those 40 under the image is talking about this oh Look up, listen to those old folks anyway, but it's nice to hear your voice.
3: <laughs>
2: hey, it's good Thank, talking to you. Thanks you... <laughs> Take care. Thank yep. you. Mr. Rick.
0: Yeah. Chris Coulter, please.
2: Chris.
8: Yeah. Um, I would, um, uh, hazard a guess that um, a lot of the reasoning behind uh, blind people in this country somehow being less independent and and more more dependent on services like paratransit it it's it has to do with people um well actually with faster cars you know are you, you're gonna you perhaps get hit by a car? A lot of a lot of blind people become really, really frightened of that whole thing. That of, could uh, be. Yeah. I the, the more the, the faster the world moves, the more dangerous other people believe it is and, and maybe it is. And I and I'm not defending the people without independence at all. I'm just thinking that's a factor.
2: I I, I, th- it, it I think is. it could be.
8: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, Paul, I, I
3: think I think Chris is right. However, um, I I also think that a lot of a lot of these folks um, have never really gotten the opportunity to see if they could function. Right right
8: i i agree with that too that is i i had the opportunities and had trouble actually using them for a long time but i um i i really i really think it is true that we just uh, sort of got into this uh uh sense of of looking looking at the the danger uh at the danger instead right. of saying you've got an opportunity uh,
2: well mm-hmm. mitch's and my generation didn't have paratransit so if no. we were going to go out and work um essentially we had to find a way of of getting around and well uh, right
8: we i did we didn't we i didn't have paratransit right. and um had an, an awful time taking buses places but I, I did some of it and um yep yep yeah mm-hmm.
3: yeah so, so you know one of one of the things Paul that I've I've always marveled about you know, we live in a big city well we live in a suburb of a big city and one of the advantages here is we've got bus service like 18 hours a day. Um we have mm-hmm. a light rail we have we have mm-hmm. Incredible access to transportation. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think of the people in our organization who live out in the country or live, we just, oh, yeah. we have a friend who just moved up to, uh, to Big Bear, which is oh, my goodness. Uh, up in the San Bernardino Mountains. And happened? I'm thinking, how, how do you get out to go to the store? Well, they've got some resources, but the people who live out in, in rural parts of the country, they have they have my my uh, undying you know respect Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they've had to find ways of dealing with with not just transportation but other issues that that those of us who live in in the middle of the city don't have to deal with
8: well and we also have to um realize that it's we should have just as wide of a choice as far as where we live and how we learn to, you know, how we learn the resources that go along with where we live. We now live. My husband and I now live in a smaller town, without a lot of. When I mean, the tra- the paratransit is like, um, they they go two miles, uh, n- n- just two miles. The that that's the that's their bus. Uh, like that, that's what they think the fixed route bus uh mirroring the, the paratransit mirroring the fi- fixed route buses, it's a two it's two miles. If you can't go somewhere that's two miles, you you just don't use paratransit. <laughs> but but um, you know if if we have we do, we made the choice to live here and we like it. We like living here, so I, I can't say, um, I can't imagine myself saying, well, I can't do this because I must live in the big city yep. with the big, <laughs> the big paratransit. <laughs>
2: no, I, I don't want the big paratransit, but I think, um, I think, I think um, a lot of blind people have been forced to, to, to move to cities.
8: Yes, um, they have. Mm-hmm. Just,
2: just in order to get jobs and in order to, to have access to transportation.
8: And in fact, we're, okay, I'm sorry. Paul, that brings
3: up a different
2: issue.
6: Sure.
3: Um, The issue, and and you're involved with your rehab um, committee in Florida, and I'm involved uh, with our blind advisory committee here, and we've got a meeting tomorrow. Uh, The number of people that I've spoken to at ACB conventions, though, who are unwilling to move, to some place where there might be more employment opportunities right. and right you know when i was on the job search as i said at the beginning i i would have moved to san francisco um a few years into my city career i applied to run an agency in fresno which is in the central valley of california and and was the runner-up for that position I, I i think that we need to be more willing to uproot if we really want to be independent and and move into some place that we don't know uh it's going to be very uncomfortable at my age i the thought of moving again um i don't want to do that i that's part of the reason i retired when my my boss at the time said we're changing offices again i said no i'm not so but i I think when you're starting out you've got to be a little more willing to to be flexible and to move
2: when gail and i got together we both agreed that um, we would we would get together in whatever city both of us found a job in.
8: <laughs> yeah, well, the one comment this will, just one quick comment yep. is that I have heard about so many people. This did not happen to me. I wouldn't have been happy about it. Um, I have I have heard of people who have been told by the service providers, "No, you must live in the big city." You you must live wherever you know the easiest place for you to get around is, and um, don't you, you, you got you you gotta you're blind and you have to live where the services are.
2: Oh no, that's not. And right I either. no, that's not right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No. So, but I think I think the service providers, there in in their experience, and this isn't to to excuse it, but. Mm-hmm. Their their job is to help people find jobs, and their experience right. is yeah. that there are more jobs where there are more people.
2: And, and, That's true. Mm-hmm. And their experience is also that that if if you if you live in an inaccessible spot, the likelihood is that there's going to be no transportation, and if there's no transportation, you don't keep the job you get. Yeah. So,
8: well, my i i've i've kind of experienced the um, i've gotten to the place where i say um i i love small town living but i don't want to live in an isolated place where there are really no people gotcha. <laughs> you know it's just i need that medium yeah. so chris yeah, thank you for thank your call you. yeah thank you mm-hmm. take care chris
0: mm-hmm. peter peter please
5: mr peter mr paul mr mitch how are you well, oh, sir, Mr. Altshul, yes. it's been a while. I know, it's been a while. I, I've been sort of fascinated by this conversation and about the, you know, sort of talking about how folks outside of this country are more uh, industrious and take more risks because they have to. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that's true. And I'm also sure that it's true that there are many of us in this country who are who have gotten lazy because of the services. I'm sure that's also true. But Paul, you, you sort of talked about how angry you were when um, you know you, you came to this country and, and sort of talked about how folks just seemed less, yep. uh, and and that's a real issue because I had experienced something similar because of my employment uh, employment traje- trajectory. But what I what I learned, and I think we all have learned, is it's not sort of either or; it's both and, right? So. know there are plenty of people in in this country who really are trying their their best to 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 take risks and do those kinds of things and um uh but for whatever reason uh don't don't succeed you know there there is discrimination out there um sure yeah sure yeah and and one other comment and then i'm happy to to shut up and and that is um one of the things that that i've always said and Mitch and i've had this conversation a couple of times is you know, there are programs for other minority groups or women or, or people of color, to sort of connect them with resources, connect them with, uh, you know, tell show them what's out there, you know. Uh, and, you know, I wish that there are more programs like that for people with disabilities and for blind people. I know there are some out there. I just spoke with some folks in Perkins today. Um, but we, we need more of that and, and we need to publicize those programs that are already out there. We also need, I think, to the extent that we can um, see what other people are doing to, to address these issues, and you know, and model and model and you know, and adapt them to our needs. So that's that's my, that's my basic. P- Peter, who 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 is who is supposed to run
2: these programs, and what are they supposed to do? Because it sounds like to, to me like you're describing the role that was given to independent living centers.
5: I, well independent living centers and i'm not an expert expert in independent living centers but um, you know they I, and i know um, they allegedly are supposed to be for all disabled people but they don't always aren't always that way um, i understand that and i'm sure that i know that to be true on the other hand and i know we're sort of a, a smaller minority than other disabled people and i know all those things and i also think that we need to find a way to sort of if 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 independent living centers aren't going to cooperate, we we should at least think about how we can. Like Perkins has this program apparently, which I'm about to uh, be inter- we're going to interview them for our employment podcast. You know, they they seem to be doing some interesting things, and I think we, at the very least we need to publicize what they're doing. You know, so we can encourage other people to do similar kinds of things. I agree with you, Paul. The infrastructure isn't there. Yeah, but but, but you know, on the other hand, or and I should say, on the other hand, you know. Uh, it's it's not just the individuals who aren't being industrious. I think you can make the case that in some cases it's the organizations that aren't being industrious or aren't being smart, yeah, aren't being street smart. Uh, and that that, that Paul, I get that Mitch.
3: One of the things, yeah, one of the things that, and I've got a lot of negative things to say about WIOA, but one of the things that it's really trying to do is to get younger people involved in the process of planning for their own futures um you know in a in a broader sense uh, i think i think our entire education system in this country needs to be totally overhauled because i don't think kids in school are learning the right things Uh, they don't seem to be learning judgment or good common sense Um, but i think for blind uh, for blind youth and, and youth with other disabilities, um, we do need to start at an earlier age teaching essentially how to be street smart, yeah. uh, how to find your own em- own employment. You know, and I don't think the stat has changed over the years. I once had a, uh, a district administrator with our Department of Rehabilitation tell me that um, we're, we're barely able to assist 10% of the disabled population in our state. So uh, if, if that's the case, then we really need um, some mechanism. And maybe what's happening with WIOA will, will start us down that road. But we need, we need really to start teaching our, our younger people um how how to be more able to to find resources to find employment to find the kinds of things that that we all need that some of us stumbled over uh via trial and error when we were when we were in our uh, our early 20s
5: and I, would also, yes. and I would argue mitch that we also need to learn from those younger people as well Um, One of the things that that struck me at last year's ACB uh, virtual convention is I stumbled into a couple of sessions run by the next gen folks. And it was just really fascinating to hear the sort of different ways they're using technology, which I didn't even know was even possible. Um, And and so I just think that there's a lot of learning to to go both ways. And we're not gonna be able to help uh, support those to get the skills that we think that they need which and I agree. I think they need those skills. If we don't accept the fact that they have skills that we might need as well. Yep i
2: i, th- I think i I think what we see in next gen is is the cream of the crop. I think you know what, what what I saw, what I saw running a college uh, were were a bunch of kids who were coming to college not knowing enough about technology to find their way out of a
5: paper bag open at both ends. No, I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I don't know where the line is, but I guess yeah. I've, I've spent uh, three or four years, uh, you know, teaching youth and working with youth uh, in a variety of different categories. And it's just right. really has, has struck me really hard that part of the problem that we're having, and it's not the only problem, but part of the problem we're having is we just aren't listening to them, you know, where we're not respecting them. Yeah and and if we don't yep. do
3: that we're not going to be able well, to teach them. Well, I don't know I don't know if it was the case at at your school. But you know Donna taught she was the the technology the alternate media yes. person at at Pasadena CC right. down the street from us and, and years ago um, I worked with with some of our chapter members who who were essentially professional students. Yep. And because of how community colleges are uh, established, um, I, I'm afraid that uh, in, in many cases, students with disabilities uh, and blind and blind students, they became professional students. Yep. It was easier than going out and looking for a job. Maybe they did spend some time looking for a job, couldn't find one. And in order to give them something to do, they just went back to community college and took classes for two, three, four, five years.
5: Oh, I, I have no doubt that that happens. I don't care. By by the way, it's not just uh, disabled people. You know, I've heard similar stories among non-disabled people, you know, they don't get the job they want. So they go back to school. I mean, this, this is, I think Donna and I have, have
2: shared some horror stories uh, uh, about technology issues that that, that I, I, I think Donna would actually agree with me that a lot of folks, um, who come to college as disabled students really have, have no idea how to proceed. And, and, you know, so, yeah. Mr. Peter, thank you, sir. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Mitch. Mm -hmm. Take care.
0: Mr. Rick, nobody on deck at the moment, Paul.
2: Excellent. Very good. So Mitch, let's talk for a few minutes about the future. Um, where where do you see ACB now, and where would you like to see ACB in five years?
3: Well, I have said for a number of years uh, that you know, if if you follow Robert Putnam at all, you read Bowling Alone. That's was sort of my Bible.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, there's been a decrease in volunteerism in this country for. 50 plus years. And so yes. what I've been saying is that uh, we love our, our grassroots members. We love our, our, the folks who volunteer, we're all volunteers, but I think more and more organizations, including ACB, have to move more toward professional staff. And I think under Eric Bridges uh, leadership, we're beginning to see that. Fortunately, we seem to have those resources because we um, if you're going to have a decline in, in, in the number of people to, who, who are willing to do more than just be men, members and go to chapter meetings and go to conventions and, and be on, on community calls, if, if you're going to have a decline in the number of people who are actually doing the work, then you do have to rely on, on more and more paid staff if you want to get the business of the organization done. So. We've, we've had to move, and I think it's it's heading in that direction even more. We're gonna have to become what most not-for-profits uh, that are surviving are, and that is not-for-profit businesses. And that isn't to say that we don't um, recognize and encourage and foster uh, involvement of our grassroots members, but it, it also has to recognize where um, where the future of of organizations seem seem to be going, and I, that's you know I, I read something years ago. That's what AARP is has done, and and it just does seem to be the trend. And you know we we have to be mindful though that the professionals need to be uh, need to steer the direction. That we, as the members, want the organization to go, uh, they they can't assume control and and you know because we we don't want to get into that top down governance as as so many of us left.
2: So uh, that was actually the point that I was going to make, but you sort of made it. So how do you protect against that?
3: Uh, I think that. I think that our elected board of directors uh, can't be yes men and yes women. I was on a board uh, many, many years ago of a local agency here where I was outvoted by the board of directors regularly eight to one because whatever their executive director said they went along with. Well, I finally resigned from that board and two years later, that organization went out of business, right? What, what our board has a responsibility to closely see, oversee, uh, and give input to what our, our paid, our paid staff is doing.
2: You know, I, I, I would argue that 15 or 20 years ago, when you were president, when I was president, um, boards were, were, much more critical than they appear to be now in acb
3: i would absolutely totally agree with you i think that um you know we're in california where you know it's it's the snowflake state uh i donna's telling me i should stop it in the background (laughs) i i just think i i i think that we are trying to be nice and consensus building and yeah and collegial, I hate that word collegial. Um, yeah, but but I, but I think when we do that, we give up some of our right to be critical, and and to be critical in a in a good constructive way.
2: Yeah. Well, and 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 I think you know that that my view is that if not officers, certainly board members have a responsibility, at least in my opinion. Um, to represent the membership uh, and even even if it means speaking against the leaders so I
3: certainly did a time or two under uh, <laughs> previous previous presidents including uh, you
2: yes you did and and it was all good and <laughs> and, and and i certainly did during chris Gray's presidency yes um, sir i was I, I was off during yours so it would have been fun to see how we'd interacted but I, I think we would have gotten along actually
3: Oh I, I, I think so um, yeah you know I, I was outspoken enough as president that I I took no end of flack and and I sure. I didn't shy away from it never have
5: no nope. and,
3: and that's nope. that's healthy for an organization
2: and, and, and I think that's what frankly it's what makes a good president if, if, if you don't have some pretty clear notions of where you're going and, and exercise some leadership, then, then you're not really fulfilling your function either. So, Mr. Mitch, um, in case people would like to get a hold of you, is there an email address you can give them where they could uh, drop you a note?
3: Absolutely, it's real easy. It's Mitch, M-I-T-C-H dot Pomeranz, Pomerantz, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-T-Z, at earthlink.net. There are still three or four of us in the country who use earthlink.net. I have a Gmail account. I hate it. I find Gmail a real pain in the patoot. So I still uh, correspond via the uh, Earthlink account.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your having spent uh, as much time with me as you have this evening. Uh, in spite of in spite of having other obligations both before and after,
0: got so somebody, thank you so somebody, much for that. Got somebody who wants to say hello, Paul. Go
5: for it.
1: Hello, it's Donna. How are Hi, you?
2: Hi, Donna. I am well. <laughs> Good.
1: I just had to say hello, and um, I absolutely love this conversation. Um, I think that it is very sad that when people disagree because we all come from different places that it's kind of weakening the fiber of our society that's how we learn from each other
2: is exactly to
1: to express our different points of view and when people set a table where everyone needs to say the same thing and support the same thing sorry that's not a table i can sit at because i wasn't raised that way
2: (laughs) nor nor me miss donna
1: and nor mitch either so
2: yeah but but that's 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 why we were able to have such constructive discussions all three of us
3: absolutely well and and yep and, and and donna and i argue about these issues all the time in fact
1: we have disagreed in public on the convention floor and we still are okay with that
3: <laughs> absolutely except,
1: that
3: I, had except that I had the gavel Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that
2: that <laughs> that that didn't serve me well i had the gavel during a resolutions committee meeting and my then wife um Started to speak, and the subject was already closed, and I ruled her out of order.
6: Yeah, I remember.
1: I remember. Oh, <laughs> oh, that had it
2: to be- was <laughs> it was not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mitch, thank you so much for being here, and Miss Donna, we're glad you you dropped in at the end. Yes. Um, la- ladies and gentlemen, next very, week there will welcome, not be a Paul. Tuesday topics um, because we will be in the midst of our legislative seminar, which is what we used to call them. Um, But we will be back on the 30th, and we look forward to seeing everybody then. Uh, In the meantime, what I've learned from tonight um, is, is old friends always have exciting and important things to say to us, and it's wonderful. Good night.